We saw in the very first part of the chapter, this book is about revealing Jesus. So our goal is to see more of Jesus as we go through this book of Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 are letters to seven churches that were in existence in those days. They're in what today would be called Turkey. They called it Asia Minor in those days. And, and these seven churches had various characteristics. Each church had its own personality. They were scattered throughout that area of Turkey. But each of them kind of demonstrates certain issues that every church deals with. And so these seven letters are really to all the churches universally throughout that area and throughout all, all of the history of the church, and to this day we see lessons that we can learn from these letters. And so we've been taking one letter each week, and so it'll take us seven weeks total to get through chapters two and three, and then probably an eighth week to go back and review all those before we dive into uh, Revelation chapter four. And we'll continue going through this book, and ultimately when we finish the book of Revelation, we will have finished the entire Bible as a church, and that's an exciting thing. Here we've come to the longest of the letters to the churches. In Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 18, all the way through the end of the chapter, he addresses the church in Thyatira. And it's an interesting letter because it has the most positive and probably the most negative things to say about a church. No church does he have as much good to say about them as the church in Thyatira. And no church does he give such a severe warning to, I don't think, than he does this church in Thyatira as well. And so it makes it interesting. The city of Thyatira is where Lydia came from. You might remember Lydia when we went through the book of Acts. She was a woman who Paul met up with in Philippi, and she was really the first convert there. She was a woman who was, a, was in the business of distributing clothing and fabric that were, that were in purple. In the area of Thyatira, there was a plant that was used for making dye that was a deep scarlet. And that color, that type of purple, was considered to be the best clothes. Royalty would be dressed in purple. And so she had an, a thriving business, no doubt, and was traveling around. And when she was there in Philippi, Paul came along, and she was one of the first people who converted and was involved in the church in Philippi, along with the jailer after Paul got arrested and he had been saved too. Well, Lydia probably went back to Thyatira, and most commentators believe that she was involved sharing the gospel there and starting the church in Thyatira. So it was a church that had some history. There was some wealth that was involved in that area. Um, but we also see they had some problems. And so, you know, Jesus uses a real good principle of communication whereby when he addresses someone, he says the good and then he lowers the boom with the bad, and then he ends up with something good. He sandwiches two good comments or dis discussions uh, around a negative one. And we see at the other authors of Scripture, John does this very well. And so that's what happens here, too. So first we'll look at what he says that's good. 
to the angel of the church of Thyatira, right? Remember, angel just means messenger. Most likely he's addressing personally the pastor, the leader of the church in Thyatira. These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So he identifies himself, Jesus does, as in all of these seven letters, and he uses some terminology that was used in chapter 1 to describe him. Except for, specifically, he is not referred to as the Son of God in chapter 1, although it's implied because in chapter 1, when, when um, it says that Jesus is the one who makes us kings and priests to, his, to God and his Father, um, that obviously implies that he is God's Son. This is an important title for him because... To them, if you were the son of God, it means you are God. You have the divine nature. It's why when he called himself the son of God, the Pharisees wanted to kill him. They knew what that meant. So Jesus is coming with the highest title that he can use for himself. I'm God. So you know he's going to be serious. And then he takes the top and bottom description, in a sense, from chapter 1. Eyes like fire and feet like brass. Looking at him, you would notice those eyes that were burning like fire. Fire is something that purifies. Fire is something that if you get in its way, it moves through you. Fire is something that penetrates. When, when someone has eyes like fire, it would be they have x-ray vision. They can just look right through you and be able to discern. And later on, Jesus talks about how he can do that. <coughs> but then... The feet of brass, brass is strong, brass is pure, brass is created by going through the fire and being refined. And so his feet of brass, you can't stop him, he's moving through, he's powerful, but at the same time he's been tested and refined and he has earned the right to rule. And, and he has done what it was taken so that sins could be forgiven that's why the, the laver of cleansing in the temple was made out of fine brass. So you get the idea that Jesus is identifying himself and flashing some of the strongest credentials he could possibly use to say, you better know who's talking to you. But then he goes, says some really nice things, about as nice of a description of a church as you could imagine in verse 19. He says, as he said with all of them, I know your works, your ergon. I know what you do. And the word know is, again, it, it means I see it. I'm in on it. So I know your works. Now, when he says to some of the other churches, I know your works, it's not a good thing. But in this case, he's using this in the best sense. I see what you do. And he, but he goes on and says, I know your works. I know your love, your agape. Now, the church in Ephesus, he said, I see you're doing good things, but you've left your first love. These people hadn't done that. He goes, you love God, you love each other. When I look at your church, I see a loving church. And that's a really good thing to have Jesus say about you, especially when fire's coming out of his eyes. From God. I see you're loving. That was the most important thing to him. That's the most important thing for the church today, that we exhibit that love that he says characterizes people who believe in him. So, so far, so good. He says, I also see your service. That word there is the Greek word diakonos, 
Um, it was a word that referred to people who would wait on tables and things like that. We call the first deacons of the church, those guys in Acts chapter 6, who were chosen to help with distribution of food and to do the logistical elements of ministry um, so that the, the apostles could do what they were called to do, that is, teach the word and pray. That was their job. So these, this word that's often translated ministry is a word that refers to doing all the things that need to be done as a body. And so he saw that they were all ministering. They were all participating. The ideal in a church is 100% participation in ministry, that everyone has something that they do. And so in the church, you have all kinds of people doing things that they do in order for things to work the way that they are. Whenever we have a special event, a lot of people are involved in making that happen. Every time we gather together, somebody had to make the te technology work, Someone has to be back there making sure that the microphones work, the video, the internet streaming. Somebody has to do the donuts and take care of that. Somebody has to greet people and walk people in and make them feel welcome. Somebody is teaching the children. Somebody else is answering the telephone. Somebody else is making copies of the DVDs and CDs so that those can be distributed. And there are other people who are praying for the service and who do that throughout the week. And all week there are a ton of ministry things that happen. And the job of the pastor of the church is to equip the saints, according to Paul in Ephesians, for the work of ministry. So my job is to encourage you to do ministry. Well, this pastor was doing a good job because Jesus said, I see your ministry. I see that you are involved. I see that you are serving. The original word, diakonos, comes from the idea of kicking up dust. It's like, man, you're doing stuff and you're like a flurry of activity. And so he's like, hey, that's great. I can't look at you and say, you guys aren't serving. You are. You're ministering. And so he says, I see that and that's good. Your service. I see your faith. Faith meaning that you believe but faith also meaning that you act on that belief through serving and other things and that you are faithful. That is that you hang in there. You don't quit. You don't, you don't give up easily. And, and you believe so strongly that it makes a difference in your life. And he goes, you're a faithful church. That too is an awesome thing to be said about a church. And then he says, not only that, I see your faith. I also see your patience. That word is a word that literally, hupomone, uh, is a word that means to remain under. It's like you take it. But many of the, of the lexicons that evaluate and analyze this word suggest that it means that you hang in there with a good attitude. Just lasting isn't necessarily something that's laudatory. There are some people who have been miserable in their marriage, but they're celebrating 50 years of misery because we just hung in there. Well, that's not the idea. Years of misery is not something to be proud of or to celebrate. But to have 50 years and to have a good attitude, that's something that, that brings glory to God. And so this is the idea that you guys are doing stuff 
and you're serving and you're loving and you're faithful and you're doing all of these things and a bunch of good works and you hang in there with a good attitude. You're happy while you're doing what you've been called to do. And again, I can't think of too many things that could be said that are better than that. But then as he finishes the verse, he says, and as for what you do, as for your works, the last are more than the first. So he says, not only you're doing all these things, you're getting better at it. Your love is better than it used to be. Your ministry is better than it used to be. Your patience, your good attitude when things are going tough, they're all improving. I mean, what a great thing to be said. How nice if somebody would say to you, you know, when I met you five years ago, you were loving, but you seem like you're more loving now than you were then. I always appreciated your faithfulness, but you're even more faithful now. How many of us could say, today I am serving God more than I was six months ago or a year ago? But what Jesus is saying about this church is, you're doing everything that the church is supposed to do. All the things that I've, that I've questioned in so many of these other churches, you guys are doing it all, and you're doing it even better. You're getting better at doing what you're supposed to do. So, wow, would, would, wouldn't you love to be in a church that God says this about them? Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to, to hear him say that about our church? And I, some days I think he would definitely say that about our church. Some days, not so sure, even about me. I mean, I, there are some days he, he would go, Dave, you're really growing. Other days he'd be like, are you still there? <laughs> are, you, are you still with me? Is this still happening? I didn't realize I can't snap my fingers anymore. <laughs> I'm going to have to work on that. I don't know. It used to happen easy. So I'm definitely not snapping my fingers as well as I used to be able. You know, when your kids get older, then you don't have to do it nearly as much. But so it's like, wow. Jesus says, I see your church, man. You're doing all the stuff churches are supposed to do, and you're doing it even better than you used to. Nice job. I'm proud of you. However, and there usually is a however, he goes, I have a problem that we need to address. From the framework of having the Son of God saying, man, there's so much good that I can say about you. And you could take this verse and preach a sermon on each of these characteristics, but he says, there's something else I need to add, and this is a problem. Because he says, nevertheless, and in our version it says, I have a few things against you. Um, some of the oldest manuscripts just say, I have against you. It says a few things in uh, the earlier in the letter to Pergamos, uh, and it's on the same page, um, and uh, he says a few things. In this case, he pretty much says one thing. So he goes, there's just a thing, there's something, an issue, that I, a bone that I need to pick with you, in other words. He goes, uh, and it sounds pretty serious. He says, I, I, I got a problem here. Because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, some of the translations, some of the early manuscripts, and, and the word would be the same, so it could be taken the other way, but it, he said, they say that it says, you allow your wife, Jezebel. And so woman or wife are the same Greek word, so this could be the pastor's wife. 
I don't know. It could just be a woman who's influencing the body. Um, I've known some pastor's wives that would make me lean one way. Um, but at any rate, he says it, calls her Jezebel. And he goes, here's the problem. You allow this. And that word for allow means you don't do anything. You just, you just let it happen. Over in Matthew 24, Jesus uses the same word when he talks about being ready. And he says, if a guy is not ready, a thief comes and breaks into his house. But if you had known when the thief was coming, you wouldn't have allowed him, and it's the same word, you wouldn't have done nothing to, to prevent it. So you allow that woman or that wife, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death, which is about the only way you can kill someone. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. And he's not done yet, but wow. He's going, I got you doing a bunch of good stuff, but there is that woman, and he calls her Jezebel, probably wasn't her name, but when he said that Jezebel probably people in Thyatira would know exactly who he's talking about. Um, Jezebel, back in the Old Testament, was the wife of King Ahab, who was a king in the northern kingdom after the northern kingdom of Israel was really going downhill. And, and Jezebel was a woman who was somebody who brought in Baal worship along with the worship of God. And so and she was a horrible woman. She was the one that ultimately was killed for her. Uh, you, you might remember the story. After the prophets of Baal were challenged to a battle up on Mount Carmel with Elijah, and then the prophets of Baal lost the, the challenge match and were killed, then Jezebel, uh, finally God said she needs to be taken out. And so as Jehu went after her, she was up in her tower and she loaded up all her makeup and, and jewelry and everything. And I guess by that age, it just wasn't working like it used to. And so they, the servants threw her off the balcony and she was killed and dogs licked up her blood. And that was her ending, which God had prophesied ahead of time by the prophet. But in the meantime, she had corrupted greatly Israel. And, and her husband, Ahab, ended up being corrupted but the bottom line is, he wouldn't stop her. He let his wife do this. And that's one reason why some commentators believe that this was someone who the pastor didn't stop because he had some obligation to her, perhaps a family obligation. But the influence of Jezebel was to do this. Now, this Jezebel, in a similar fashion, this woman in a similar fashion, was enticing believers, enticing people in the church to be involved in sexual immorality and idolatry. And so, in order to completely understand that, we have to understand their culture in those days, because this was not an unusual practice that she was enticing them into, and you might think, how could she do that in the church? I mean, we have some people, every once in a while there's some crackpot group 
who will say, oh, you can worship Jesus, but a part of that is to be involved in sexual immorality and idolatry, and it's a way that we'll get close to God. There have been fringe groups that would do that. Um, David Koresh and the people who, who ended up losing their lives with him was one of those. Uh, Charles Manson and his family was another one. The Children of God cult was a, another one that did that, ultimately. Tell people, hey, there is a healing effect to you being able to be sexually involved with someone who is a holy man, and therefore that will help purge some of what's wrong with you. Now, in the first century, in Thyatira, that's exactly what was going on. They had these temples, and in these temples, it was kind of like their version of psychotherapy in a way, because they had the belief that most, just like Sigmund Freud, that most of your problems trace back to some sexual issue that you have. And they understood that if you were just going around having sexual relations with all kinds of different people, it was going to be disruptive to society. So they said, go to these sex therapists at the temple. And it's not contradictory to Christianity at all. In fact, it will be a very healing thing for you to go and participate in this activity, and it's actually going to have a therapeutic effect. And as you eat the food that's sacrificed to idols and you celebrate in that temple, you get the best of both worlds in a very in an environment that's safe and not not going to complicate your relationships with other people that you might cheat with. And so they presented this, and this was a normal part of their life that you go to these places and you will experience some sort of emotional and a, a physical outlet that will be beneficial for you. And hey, everybody, it's a win-win. Who can argue with that? That was their cultural concept of how you can be healthy and happy. And so they were promoting this. And Jezebel apparently was saying, as the, orig as the original Jezebel did, you don't have to just stick with what you've always been taught. There's a way, in a win-win sort of way, that you can take what the world is doing and you can integrate it, you can syncretize it with your Christianity. And it's a win. It works fine. Now, in our culture, there aren't too many people who are telling you to go to a temple of a pagan temple and have sex with the official temple prostitutes and then eat meat sacrifice to idols and you'll feel better afterwards. And I understand that there are places that people go that, are, that some people would say is doing the same thing, except I don't hear a lot of Christians advocating that. So what do we make of this? And I would, you know, I asked some people this week, what do you think is today's equivalent to this program that they had back then? How would we apply this? And, and one person said, and I, and I thought it was really profound, said, you know, I think that coexist bumper sticker says it all. I don't know if you've seen the coexist bumper sticker. You probably have. 
And it's a nice sentiment. Originally, the coexisting, they have the word coexist, and, and the C is a, is, a, is a moon symbol like the symbol for Islam, the crescent moon. And then the X symbol is a star of David representing Judaism. And the T is a cross representing Christianity. And the idea of it is, hey, we have these three major world religions, monotheistic religions, and why can't we get along? Why can't we? Why do we have to try to change each other, convert each other, fight with each other? Why can't we all just get along? Now the coexist thing has become more complicated because most of them that you see thought, well, the O should be something too. We might as well make every letter. And so in a lot of them now you see the old peace symbol that that was big in the 60s, that meant peace. It was actually a symbol that was created in the 50s as a, as a protest against nuclear weapons. Um, and the broken star, it's not some pagan occultic symbol. It's actually a combination of the two semaphore signals for N and D, which, would, which is the idea is nuclear disarmament. So people who are in favor of nuclear disarmament and then just peace in general as the hippies kind of co-opted that and made it about peace, that's been included. Then there are people who have a Wiccan symbol in the word to include them. Others who have a symbol for an atheist to include them in this coexisting. Others, other versions of the coexist symbol are um, mathematical formulas referring to science and technology. as being. But the whole idea of it is, why can't we just have it all? Why can't we just get along? And it's the same kind of syncretism that the original Jezebel was advocating. It's the same kind of syncretism, no doubt, that this woman was advocating within the first century church. And I think today it's the same mentality. Now understand this. The people who came up with that notion are motivated by good things. And, and this whole emphasis on tolerance... Um, I'm not completely opposed to it because we certainly should be tolerant. We certainly should not insist by force that other people believe the way we do and we should not promote laws that would make everyone else be like us. However, we are followers of a, an exclusive God. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In the Old Testament, God said in the Ten Commandments to the Jews, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So now you have a problem with tolerance because we can't all just get along on, this, on an equal basis because we have gods that say, I'm the only one. And our God is the one who is most insistent on exclusivity. And so that destroys any notion for syncretism. Now, you know, yes, we, we see the reasons why people are into tolerance because there have been people who in the name of Jesus or other religions, Islam or whatever, are very, very intolerant. And that's a bad thing. There's no reason for us to hate people who do things differently than we do. There's no reason for us to lash out against people that we want to see drawn to Jesus. It's completely counterproductive. 
You have like this Fred Phelps guy with his church, that the God Hates Fags ministry, and they aren't winning anybody to Jesus. They're just looking like idiots in the name of Jesus, and he, he's disgusted by what they're doing. And I think anyone who, who speaks hatred against some other belief, that works completely against it. That's not God's heart. However, it is extremely dangerous to act like we can all accept each other and let's no one try to change anyone else. Let's just all get along. And let's just believe what we want to believe and not try to convince somebody else that they should believe the way we do. Well, that's a problem for a group of people who have been commanded by their Lord to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But in the church today, we have this sense of, it's kind of a reaction against intolerance. But what happens is because we believe what we believe, and that is exclusive, then we are hated by people because we are seen as being intolerant. And, and there's no reason why we should be intolerant, but at the same time, we have to speak the truth. And our mandate, our purpose in life, is to tell people who don't know Jesus that they need to know Him. But what happens, the church gets watered down as soon as we just try to, let's just include everybody, let's have a big tent, let's just let everybody in on this. You know, it's kind of like mixing manure with ice cream. You know, it, it doesn't hurt the manure, but it ruins the ice cream. And the gospel, when you start to mix it up with other things, just becomes so diluted that it becomes unuseful. The flavor, the taste is gone. We have to find a way to, to be only about Jesus and to, to demonstrate that what we believe is different without going out and attacking everyone else and driving them away or without just saying, you know what, it's okay. You believe what you believe. We believe what we believe. And I think the predominant culture today is so indoctrinated to tolerance that anything that says anyone is wrong becomes something that's an enemy, becomes something that's problematic. And so when I was talking to John Mark Reynolds, who is the, he's a brilliant guy, philosopher, who, who runs the program at Biola for the smartest kids in the college, and it's called the Tory Institute. And I asked him, I go, you get the smartest kids from the church coming to your program. And I said, what do you see as the number one thing that causes those kids to lose their faith? And because that's interesting to me because statistics show that so many kids who go to college end up losing their faith, even at Christian colleges. And it used to be, the answer used to be science because kids who go to college, they would discover, hey, looks like the universe is billions of years old. I guess I have to reject Christianity. And so I said, is that it? And he goes, no, not, that's not an issue for people anymore. He said, what kids are stumbled by today, and many of them fall away from the Lord because of it, is that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is wrong. And because of that, they have been so indoctrinated that we're all okay that they just can't hang with that, and, and they leave the faith because of that. 
And I think that's sad on a couple of accounts. I, I think it's sad that the church has treated homosexuality like it's something that's completely different than every other sin, and that's been foolish and unbiblical. But it's also sad because we have a society that does not want to tell anyone that they're wrong. And that's the heart of where our culture is heading. And again, they have good intentions. <laughs> they start out as like, look, we need to, people are blowing themselves up over their faith. Can't we just all go, it's okay, and let's not try to change each other? The problem is we need to be changed. So you have a guy like Joel, Joel Osteen, for instance, who I look at him, and the guy's heart, I'm sure, is pure. And he so wants to just let people know that God loves them. And I, and I thank God for the people that he is influencing and introducing to Jesus Christ. So I, I may be critical of sometimes the way he waters things down so much, but I was proud of him this last week. Someone was interviewing him and said, do you believe that homosexuality is a sin? And I expected him to say, well, I can't say what a sin is. I just do what I do. But he goes, yeah, the Bible says that, and I believe it's a sin. And people who used to think, oh, he's awesome, turned on him like he's the most horrible person in the world because he just said what the Bible said. Same thing happened to Rick Warren when he said, I believe that marriage should be for a ma one man, one woman. I mean, an opinion that the president himself said that he agrees with, and yet Rick Warren, everybody wanted him to not be able to pray at the inauguration because of his position on a political bill that just expresses a concern that the, by far the majority of people in this country and all the political candidates for president said that they agreed with. So that's our world today. And it's really problematic and it, and it threatens us greatly because the power of Christianity and the gospel is in its distinctness, in that it's different than every other belief system because it is telling the truth. And what was to Jezebel in her day, what was to this Jezebel in the first century in Thyatira, is the same threat, I believe, to the body of Christ today, that when people are promoting that nobody's wrong, we do nothing and we say nothing. Now, it's a challenge to me as a pastor because I don't get up here every week and preach against anybody. I think I want to preach in favor of the truth. But there are times when people have been so damaged by this evil syncretism, this dangerous, well-meaning syncretism, that the church is affected. And people begin to think more like what the world is, and they start to think, well, this has some good to it. Maybe we should kind of integrate that into our overall holistic approach to life. And I have to say, and I, and I hope I'm faithful in doing this as it comes up in the Word. I am not, you'll never hear me, you know, spend a week speaking against anyone. Because my job is to preach Christ and Him crucified. And He is very exclusive, and that's what I want to preach. But at the same time, I want to be faithful to, to let you know that anyone who waters that down, anyone who goes, well, it's Jesus and psychology, it's Jesus and popular culture, it's Jesus and attracting non-believers and not offending them. It's no, it's Jesus. It's the gospel, pure and simple. And that's something that we have to recognize. And to neglect that is to see people who believe in Jesus to be endangered 
by manuring up their ice cream to where now it's not edible. To getting, sorry for the image, but, and no, I didn't say it first service on the radio. Um, but that's the danger. And so here is this church that's doing it right. And yet the Lord says, you know what though? There was a time for you to speak up. And for some reason you did nothing. Now, he doesn't say, so get out there and march in the streets. Get out there and you get that woman. And you. In fact, he says, I've been patient with her. I've been giving her an opportunity to repent. Now, notice he says, I'm going to do this to her and to her adherents. They're going to be destroyed. They're going into great tribulation unless they repent. I'll kill her children with death. doesn't mean her literal children. It's those people who have been pulled away into her teachings that, that this is okay. They're going to ultimately die eternally. The idea of being killed with death is the second death. And he says, and every church is going to know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I'll give to each one of you according to your work. So, He says, I'm the one who knows minds and hearts. Now, I'm glad that he doesn't say, you need to judge people's minds and hearts because I can't judge people's motives. And he doesn't say, pastor, deal with this. He gives a subtle implication by going, you really haven't done anything. You haven't spoken up. But then Jesus said, you haven't done it, so I will. And he says, I know their heart. See, people who are promoting syncretism often have a good heart. And so God's patience toward them may be because he wants to draw them to the truth. He knows their heart. There are people in our culture who are advocating syncretism in a huge way, popular way. I think of someone like Oprah Winfrey, for instance, who this is her dogma. This is what she worships. And I have no doubt that it's from a good intention. I believe that her heart is well, and I I pray for her whenever I see her on television or in the news or anything. And I believe that God is giving her a chance to see the truth and and to return to an exclusive faith in Jesus that she once advocated when she was a child. Um... And so he says, look, I'm the one that does this. So he doesn't command us to go judge people. What he commands us to do is to speak the truth, to maintain a purity in our faith, and at times to speak up and address our concerns about that which would water down the purity of the gospel. But he is the one who can read people's hearts and minds. He's the one who will ultimately supervise over the destruction of people who continue to follow after bogus faith. They, they get so watered down that the gospel isn't there anymore. And they'll be judged. And the idea is, hey, you need to warn people about this because there will be devastation and destruction as a result of this dangerous syncretism. You following me? Okay, well, our time's up, but we'll finish. <laughs> now, verse 24, to you I say, to this pastor, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say. The, the depths of Satan was, a, was an expression that was used by some of these practices. And what they were saying is when you indulge in these 
practices, these immoral practices, you're actually sinking into a deep place and furrowing out sin that's deep inside you. Generational curses, things that have happened in the past, maybe a, you know, something that you went through in the past that you've pushed down in your memory. You haven't dealt with it. So in order to deal with the depths of Satan, you go through these practices and it's going to help you purge and heal from those things. So what Jesus says is, the rest of you that haven't descended into that, the rest of you who haven't had your faith destroyed by this, he says, as they say, I'll put on you no other burden. He goes, I, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you it's your problem to deal with all this mess. That's not my point. I'm going to deal with the mess. But hold fast what you have until I come. Hang on to what you're doing. Your ministry, your love, your faith, your great attitude, everything that you're doing now, your love, Keep doing that and hang on tight. The implication is there needs to be a commitment to the truth and it's going to be difficult. And it would seem to indicate that there are people who can be pulled away from the truth if they, if they are watered down enough by some of this false teaching. Um, what do I do with that in terms of, hey, can you lose your salvation and everything? I don't have time to do that, so you're just going to have to figure that out on your own, and someday on a Wednesday night, I'll deal with that issue more in depth. But, but he says, you hang on to what you've been doing, and he who overcomes, the one who wins, and keeps my works until the end, who hangs in there, to him I will give power over the nations. And then he quotes from Psalm 2, which is a passage that refers to Jesus as the Messiah ultimately reigning. Psalm 2 is the one that starts out, Why do the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord, against his anointed. He that sits in the heavens laughs. He'll have them in derision. And then it says what these, this verse says, He'll smash them with a rod of iron. He'll rule over them, crush them like a potter's vessel, referring to his judgment and his reigning in the millennium. Now he says, if you guys make it, you are going to be involved in leadership in the kingdom. And we could go into that more, but we don't have time to do it. Here's his point. He says, you guys haven't exerted all the leadership that you could have. There were things you could have spoken about that you didn't. You did nothing as people were being pulled away from the faith. And I'm stepping in to take over that. But I want you to understand, in the future, there are greater responsibilities that are going to be entrusted to you. And so I'm bailing you out on this one, but I want you to understand that what I want to do ultimately is to put you in a position of leadership, to stand up, to speak up, and to rule over this earth. So, I mean, he's going, you've not, you haven't been so well, but in the same way that you're growing in your love and your faith and your ministry and all those things, you're going to grow in your leadership. Don't feel like this is the end. I'll never trust you again. In fact, I'm going to use this to make you even better leader, and someday you will lead in a significant way. And he says, as I also have received it from my father. I, he gave me this responsibility, and I'm going to be give, sharing it with you. And then he says, and I will give the one who overcomes the morning star. That star, the last 
bright spot that you see in the sky, and some people have identified it with the planet Venus, but that last bright spot that you see that means the sun is about to come up. And he goes, that's what I have for you. That right now, although the morning star may be faint, the sun is coming. And Jesus identifies himself over in Revelation chapter 22, and he says, I'm the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So essentially he's saying, what you get is me. You maintain a pure faith. You don't water it down. You accept that Jesus is the only way and you do what he's commanded you to do to share that truth with others and you get me, the bright morning star. And then he just says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if if God is speaking to you, you need to hear what he's saying and apply this in, in our own lives and however we do it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. And what it challenges us to, we are in a world where there are maybe even really well-intentioned Jezebels. And Jezebel in the Bible probably started out just trying to help the people and be a good king's wife, a good queen. But Lord, we know where that leads. We know that we cannot add anything to you, that it has to simply be you. Help us to maintain that clear, simple truth of your word and to acknowledge that we don't need anything else nothing else to mix in with it no other approach to help enhance it it is what it is may we live in the purity of your truth and lord may it be said of our church that we're getting better at love and service and our works and our faithfulness and all of these things that that we grow But help us to also maintain a simplicity and purity about what matters to us, that we would just preach Jesus and him crucified every chance we get. And we thank you for your word and what it says to us today in Jesus' name. Amen.